Hey everyone, I'm Sydney. I'm Anjana. And I'm Epsa, and welcome to Reimagined. So, the three of us recently graduated from college, and now we're navigating the world of post-grad experiences during a year that definitely has been quite the catalyst for change. This podcast is going to be a platform for young women to think critically about the society we currently live in and have meaningful discussions on creating a better future. Every Thursday, two of us will be interviewing women who are rethinking and reshaping our workplaces, politics, the environment, entire industries, or even just their own lives. So follow us as we navigate our own personal and professional journeys and meet some kick-ass women along the way. We hope their stories empower you to reimagine your own journey. Whatever you're passionate about, reimagine it. Epsa, congratulations on officially graduating from Cal Poly's class of 2020. Thank you. Thank you, Anjana. I mean, yes, it has been a year and a half and I am on my second job (laughs) post-grad, but I graduated. Um, Thank you. It feels liberating. And honestly, it feels really good to have this final closure on like, quote unquote, the best four years, like such good, honestly, Mm -hmm. such good memories. And like, these were some damn formative years of our lives. So it's nice being able to close that chapter and like continue to move forward, you know, for sure. And I definitely wish I was there with you and Sydney and Hannah, We missed you, (laughs) Um, but I feel like I've lived six lifetimes since we graduated, but either way, I definitely feel like, you know, like having that closure would have been really great. Like walking across that stage and being like, okay, you know, we did it. This is it. I think that's the closure is so important, especially because like our conversations right now and most of my convos with people like within the COVID era has been, oh my gosh, remember when, or do you mm-hmm. remember this like fond memory we've had? Mm-hmm. These are just convos we have all the time. And actually like th- this whole theme of like reflection and talking about the past and quote, maybe like romanticizing the past. All of this is actually the topic of discussion for today with our guest, Charlotte Lieberman. Yeah, and we felt like this before before I introduced Charlotte, who I used to work out virtually with. <laughs> um, you know, we feel like this is a really great topic for the end of the year and the last episode of the year. Um, you know, just because we're always talking about our goals for 2022 and romanticizing maybe like our past pre-2021, <laughs> pre-2020. Um, but Charlotte is is super cool. She like does a billion different things, but we actually wanted to talk to her about her article on the New York Times, which she wrote and it's called Romantic- Why We Romanticize the Past. Um, Charlotte is a multidisciplinary writer, creative brand director, and certified hypnotherapist and coach. Um, which is super cool. But in addition, she's also a mental health thought leader and regularly contributes to the New York Times, the Harvard Business Review, Marie Claire, and elsewhere. She frequently speaks about mental health and mindfulness at organizations and has been featured, has been a featured guest on CBS This Morning, The Today Show, and NPR, among other prominent media platforms. I mean, in short, Charlotte is literally the most multifaceted woman we've ever, like, I- She's just amazing. And we're so stoked for you all to listen to this episode. This episode is really like the biggest AP psych dump of knowledge. It's all about Mm -hmm. the concept of like faulty memories, how to stay and the big ticket item of really how to stay present when, you know, the present doesn't necessarily live up to the past, Mm -hmm. all the relevant topics, an amazing conversation. And we're so excited for you guys to listen, especially you 2020 grads. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
All right. Hi, Charlotte. Thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Before we get into the meat and potatoes of our episode today, could you, just, <laughs> could you just walk us through your career journey? I know you've had a lot of experience in journalism. You're a coach, a hypnotherapist. I'm just curious to see and hear the why behind your career journey and like the type of stories you like to write for and just your overall background and where you're at now. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Um, no, it's true that on paper I do like a whole potpourri of things. So it might be hard to imagine how I actually spend my days. Um, and the answer is that I, I do, I do do a variety of different things. Um, I studied English in college and when I graduated, I didn't really have a clear sense of what I wanted to do. I knew what I didn't want to do, which was do on-campus recruiting and get a consulting job because I went to the info session and it made me depressed. Understandable. Um, so <laughs> honestly, so fair. I got myself out of that. So you like saved yourself a good one. Yeah. So I knew that wasn't for me. Um, and then I had the really good fortune of having a writing opportunity occur right after I graduated. Um, it was for Cosmopolitan Magazine. Um, and it was about college dating. And at the time it kind of, I guess it went viral. Um, I think that term was used in 2013. And yeah, and from there, I just sort of rode the momentum of that and kept pitching articles, pivoting away from the kind of hookup culture beat to writing mostly about health, um, women's health, sex a little bit, though I never felt fully kind of comfortable with that because I, I do feel like I'm more of a private person. Um, and then through writing publicly, as I guess you could call me a journalist, I sort of identify more as a writer, but there are journalistic elements to what I do. Um, I also began doing some consulting work for uh, wellness and health companies that needed content. Um, and that sort of arose organically as a consumer of a lot of wellness products um, and networking. And, you know, these things are never really that linear, but I've sort of been juggling the sort of public persona of me as a writer and then the work uh, that I do for companies, which, you know, running my own business, it's really a variety of things from creative direction to you know brand strategy um media strategy and sort of pr campaigns so it's really a whole host of things but they're all kind of related in my head uh you know on paper as i said it, it can be um a bit of a mouthful to explain um but yeah i would say anything writing content related is definitely my beat in the health and wellness space and then um also kind of brand strategy and marketing. Um, so it's sort of a, a mix of those two things. Charlotte, what's it like living my dream? <laughs> well, this is where I want to be. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It doesn't really feel like a dream on most days to me. So it's flattering <laughs> to me and sort of relevant to our discussion today about memory and just perspective on things. Yes. Um, like I'm not romanticizing my day to day, but it seems like you're... <laughs> romanticizing my day-to-day because you probably don't have a sense of all of the BS that I also deal with. Um, not that you don't have BS, but just a different anyway. type of BS. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'll I will romanticize. There. I will romanticize anything outside of the nine to five. Yeah. Um, 
So getting into the meat and potatoes, as the cop. We obviously, I thought this conversation around romanticizing the past is such like a relevant topic of discussion to our listeners and to people who are kind of in our age demographic, I guess, of recent grads, people who graduated. Um, we graduated in March 2020, right when everything kind of hit the fan. And I say relevant because I do think on some level, we all experienced this, especially as recent grads when we were dropped into our childhood homes, really had no sense of closure um, when it came to, you know, life pre-COVID. And so we look back and we're like on some of our most formative years and we're like, wow, you know, I really missed that. But, you know, speaking for myself, I, I find myself suppressing a lot of the memories of anxiety of, um, you know, I was like crying a lot all the time from stress. And I guess that leads me to, you know, the crux of it all, which is how perfect or imperfect is our memory really? Yeah. So, I mean, I think your question was leading in so far as it is definitely not perfect. Um, I I personally think a lot of the misconceptions around memory have to do with how it's portrayed in media, particularly film, um, because I do think we have a misconception often that memories are like film, like video that we just kind of like go into a little archive and retrieve, you know, memory of, you know, party in just sophomore year or something. But really what we're doing is stitching something together. And you can use that metaphor. Um, someone I spoke with for my article, a researcher named Ann Wilson, she talked about being an archeologist. So it's almost like, I don't know if you've ever seen archeologists use one of those pans. It's like mm -hmm. you're looking for shards of things. And then ultimately as the archeologist, you're creating a narrative of what does it mean that these shards were here? Um, so when you're thinking about that party from sophomore year, part of it is probably, you know, may maybe you have a specific memory of a song or a person that was there, or an outfit you wore or what you did beforehand. And obviously this differs for people. I personally have a photographic memory, which is like weird. And so I can remember really specific things. I'm obviously not perfectly because my memory is not perfect, but you know, some people don't have a, a great memory, but they are relying on feelings or sensations or evocations of something. Um, and then they're reconstructing something out of that. So that party might be, a, you know, I'll use another metaphor, a tapestry of kind of what they wanted the party to be like sitting here in 2021, you know, oh, that was such a wonderful party. You know, my friends were there. It was so warm that night. And like, I kind of put into the memory tapestry what I kind of wish had happened. Mind you, none of this is kind of consciously taking place. But I think the bottom line is that there are a number of cognitive biases and patterns that are actually hardwired in us that we can get into that are manipulating our memories so that they're actually the result of like a very intricate process of reconstruction rather than objects we kind of take out of a cabinet. When you say manipulating, does that mean like we can also come up with completely fake memories that didn't actually happen? Yeah, I mean, and you, you hear about this, especially when people tell themselves a story again and again, and this can happen in so many different ways. 
but but yeah, I mean, things happen where, you know, a few kind of key dynamics that, that you'll hear about are, you know, repression of painful memories. Um, mm-hmm. And there's obviously a huge realm of research around trauma and memory, mm-hmm. um, which is a little bit different than what we're talking, uh, very different than what we're talking about, but it is worth mentioning. Um, then, you know, the imagination research actually shows it with brain imaging that when we're imagining something and remembering something, it's actually a very similar part of the brain. So a lot of our memories are embellished with imagination. So if I'm thinking about that party in sophomore year, maybe I'm imagining a song that was popular that year or imagining dancing with someone who was at the party, but maybe I didn't actually dance with because it gives me texture and detail and and that brings me meaning or some kind of narrative in the present mm-hmm. um and so there I'm bringing a lot of myself in the present to those memories of my relationship to them mm-hmm. and you know another thing to mention too is especially with regard to COVID and kind of larger sort of more macro themes is um what one of the researchers I spoke to the same woman I mentioned Ann Wilson she calls um she calls this our current lens so our current lens is kind of what we're looking through to see our memories and our memories will be different depending on what our current lens is so if I'm like right now in 2021 let's say I'm having like the best year ever I don't know who's having the best year ever I'm not but (laughs) let's say I am I might look back on the past and be like oh man like I really, you know, gotten my act together and I'm doing great and my apartment's great and Mm -hmm. I'm in a great relationship and like my work's awesome. That's like not how I'm feeling, but let's just say it is. I might look back on 2015 and be like, man, I'm, I'm doing great. You know, on the other hand, if I'm in 2021 and there's been a pandemic that's ongoing and I've spent most of my time inside and I'm just bored and unmotivated which is all real for me and for a lot of other people likely that current lens of boredom and lack of motivation and yearning for connection is going to create a filter on how I'm looking back at the past and that filter is probably going to condition me to dredge up more positive memories from the past so I can kind of give myself proof that my hypothesis that the past is better than the present is true. So I guess going back to this idea of like our perceived memory versus like what actually happened um, and how that can affect the current decision-making. I'm just going to throw a random example I've never been through. Um, (laughs) If you were, let's say like, you know, getting, thinking about getting back into an old relationship or like, deciding whether or not to quit a job, um, but you're forgetting maybe somewhat painful experiences from the past or your brain's intentionally giving you more a rosy perspective of it. Um, do you have any tips on like how you can make more reasonable decisions currently? Does that make any sense? Yeah, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying like, let's say you were in a bad relationship and then you break up and you're sort of being like, well, was it so bad? I don't mm-hmm. know. Maybe I should get back together with yes. a person, something like that. Yes, exactly. Um, Never been through it. Yeah, saying. no, I mean, the first thing I think to say is that like, within reason, I don't think we should necessarily denigrate romanticizing things. Like 
our memories evolved this way as a survival mechanism, really, which is to say, when we're in a bad place, we have this amazing ability to bring ourselves to a better place. Um, and that's actually really hardwired for survival. So if you think about it as, I'll give like a very generic example. If I'm a hunter gatherer and I'm feeling acute stress or anxiety, that was probably due to some survival threat. And I can summon my memory or imagination. I can simulate a situation of how am I gonna run away from that? predator or the last time I ran away from a smaller predator what did I do that was successful that allowed me to survive so this mm -hmm. is like actually a really important thing that we have and I don't think it's something that we want to get rid of um that said if you're romanticizing like an emotionally abusive partner and considering getting back together with them like that obviously has negative consequences that that one you know should not want to you know relive but um I don't think this conversation is about like how do we stop doing this because right. I, I don't think we want to stop doing this and I like being nostalgic I think it's nice you know um but you're right that we don't want to lose sight of our negative experiences because they provide us insight um a lot of the time and I, I mean I will I will even say that about COVID like I've changed a lot and I don't want to get rid of those change you know I, mm -hmm. I feel like it's changed me in a really fundamental way and it's changed our world in a really fundamental way mm -hmm. that I feel like actually is good but I do think it comes down to what are ways to be more realistic with how we think about the past in mm -hmm. order to help our decision making in the present for this particular example mm -hmm. um and i think the bottom line is is awareness so if if you're aware on a very basic level that memories aren't accurate records of the past and that there are things you might be shifting or changing or amplifying or forgetting when you look at the past. I think that simple awareness is enough to give you some space to consider, hmm, am I forgetting something? It, it kind of ignites curiosity, just that awareness mm -hmm. of like, hmm, maybe this is not the whole picture. And one thing that, that I will say personally that I do is I keep a journal I was um, just going to ask you, I was like, yeah. well, it helps to write down everything. One of the tools is these things that the author Julia Cameron calls morning pages. And it's basically just dumping everything that's on your mind into a journal in the morning. Mm. For, she says, first thing when you wake up, I do it like after I've like fed myself, et cetera. But, um, and the whole idea is that you don't read them. You just literally put everything down on the page. I have read them occasionally over the years. Um, but that's not the point. The point is just to kind of uh, log whatever's there. Um, two quick questions. So one, why does she suggest writing in the morning versus like any other time of day? It's just a sense of, um, I don't want to use the word clean because that feels moral, but it's a bit of a clean slate. Um, mm -hmm. You're waking up and she describes it in one part of the book as sweeping everything to the center of the room. So it can just like air out, you know, it's like yeah. when things are kind of scattered and this kind of gives it 
it sort of allows you to consolidate everything that's on your mind and just like let it be there yeah um mm -hmm. so it's not hiding or um contorting itself but it, it's an amazing tool um and i think it it can be a really profound practice for a variety of different things not just for what we're talking about is there a reason she suggests did she suggest like not reading them or like she does she does is, oh. is there a reason why uh, well, the whole book is centered around this idea. She calls it creative recovery, artistic mm -hmm. creative recovery. Um, and a big part of it is, you know, kind of quieting the inner critic. That's like a big part of the journey. And so I think that, you know, the idea of reading your writing that's not supposed to be good or evaluated is just giving you a sense of safety that like this really isn't for anything besides the practice. Um, yeah. That's really helpful. Thank you. I know. I, I I really like the concept of not reading it, I think. And then like maybe reading it like later down the road and just seeing like the growth or just like, I don't know, identifying and pinpointing yourself in that moment. I actually, and this is kind of going to lead into my question about like the fading effect bias and dampening of the pleasure, but I have like a quick story that I also that uses like journaling and stuff. So a year ago, like in this, as Anjana described, we moved back home, started our first job. So I was like back home, starting my first job. And to put it short, it was quite literally, it was a, it was a really difficult experience, like transitioning to working and doing work that was just very not attuned to who I am. But I'm in this new job and I love it. And I just have the hardest, honestly, the hardest time remembering what was so bad. I'm just like, oh yeah, like it was just bad. But I, I was journaling and I had like Google Docs of like my timestamps and dates. And when I'm reading it, I, I'm very glad I wrote it all down, but I am picking up on all these details that I physically cannot remember myself and my brain going through, but I can like see myself like acting it out. If this makes any sense, I can visualize myself being sad. Like I can see myself being sad, but I cannot feel those emotions because right now in my job, I'm like very happy, very content. So I'm curious about your take on that, because I know in your article, um, you quoted Dr. Thompson about how we're hardwired to give negative stimuli a lot more cognitive attention in the present. So like when I was miserable in my job, I was telling everyone who would listen about how miserable I was. You did. But then those, I, yeah, I have like many people that can validate that. But then those details disappear by the wayside in our memories. Um, and it was all about like the rosy retrospection and then the fading effect bias. So I was wondering if you could just like put context to those key words and how that relates to my story, because I'm sure a lot of people relate to that as well. Totally. Yeah. Um, I will start by saying what Dr. Thompson was talking about is actually another yeah. um not to introduce more terminology oh, no. and jargon, but bring it on. Yeah. But it's what she's talking about is called negativity bias, which is literally we're hardwired to focus in the present on negative experiences. And this goes back to the hunter gatherer time. So if I'm, let's say it's the afternoon and I'm a hunter gatherer and I'm lounging on a patch of moss eating berries and then I hear a loud noise, I'm going to focus, I'm going to be like, you know, screw these berries. I have to listen to that um, because it, it's important. What if it's a predator? What if it's someone trying to attack me? So 
that we've we've kept that and you know we're not hunter gatherers but this is why like if you're sitting in a movie and you have i don't know a headache even if it's an amazing movie you're kind of like can't really enjoy it because you're focused on your headache or you got a stressful text before the movie and you're like ruminating about the text even though Mm -hmm. the movie you've been looking forward to it for weeks so it's like once it's there and you notice it and you're feeling it it's like all you can focus on again and that's a survival mechanism um and then and that's obviously also dampening to explain that term that would be dampening anything positive about that time so maybe within your day-to-day of hating your job you like took really nice walk or there was I did yeah or like maybe don't call that yeah I don't know if you're still living in your childhood home but let's say you were living in your childhood home and it was really nice to spend time with x y or z person Mm -hmm. and that's something that you're probably not going to have access to in phases of your life and somehow you're not even appreciating that and that's where the dampening comes in. It's mm-hmm. because of negativity bias, we dampen pleasure in, mm-hmm. in the way that we're kind of perceiving our present experiences. Um, and then rosy retrospection is basically just another term specifically coined by um, Dr. Thompson and her colleague in a paper they wrote in the 90s um, about this phenomenon. It's basically another way of talking about nostalgia or romanticizing mm-hmm. the past, which is you know, the kind of, oh, was that job so bad? You know, I kind of remember enjoying the flexibility or, you know, it kind of goes back to um, what Anjana was talking about with the relationship. It's like, oh, but we went on that really nice trip, you know, to Miami. So mm-hmm. was it bad? I don't, I'm kind of just remembering those photos we took on the beach, you know? So there is this way in which our memory doesn't provide us access to all of those Um, nitty gritty negative things that we're experiencing in the present moment and that that is a phenomenon called fading affect bias which you know that the definition is basically the phenomenon where negative experiences fade more readily than positive ones so just to kind of clarify the negativity bias when you're in the present moment and like something sucks real bad but you know, whatever is good about that moment is kind of dampened versus what you were just talking about is like rosy retrospection is like you'd forget those bad things and just kind of see like the highlight reel, I guess, of what happened. Is that correct? Okay. Yeah. And there are obviously like lots of different biases and things happening that contribute to all of those things. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. one thing that's a little bit challenging about this, this topic and obviously other psychological phenomena is like, there are all these dynamics that are at play and affecting each other and there's no like there's no strict equation like Mm -hmm. because of x and y z happens a lot of this is just like human language you know different researchers have different names for things so you know rosy retrospection sounds like a very like specific phenomenon but it's actually pretty much nostalgia pretty much looking at the past with rose-colored glasses, you know, whatever you want to call it. So I just, I just want to call that out because I do think it can be confusing. Um, And I think the bottom line is that like, we all relate to this stuff and it, and it feels resonant when we can experience it in our personal memories and our personal lives. Definitely. Um, Um, No, I think, I think you explained it really well. And the, the examples you used are very I mean, they made sense to me because I'm like, oh yeah, like I really appreciate having this time with my family, but like all these other things that are going, aren't 
going right in my life or just like taking over, you know? Yeah. Um, we, Epps and I, when we were researching yesterday, we came across this cute little quote I want to share with you. So cute. By Virginia Woolf. Um, it's, I can only note that the past is beautiful because one never realizes an emotion at the time. It expands later and thus we don't have complete emotions about the present, only about the past. Um, so what memories do you think are ones that we are constantly cultivating and why? That's a good question. Um, I think it obviously depends on like the person's values and, and their, you know, culture. And, and there are obviously tons of things that, that will affect what memories people are going to. But in terms of identifying kind of patterns, what's called autobiographical memory, which is what we're talking about, memories, events of things from our lives. Um, there's been research by Ann Wilson, who I mentioned, showing that memories are a huge part of how we make sense of who we are and like who we are as people, as a self. It's how we create stories about our growth and our, you know, our self-esteem. So I think we, we tend to cultivate memories that contribute to that. So let's take, Anjana, you were talking about wanting feeling unmotivated about writing, but looking back on college and being like, wow, I was writing all the time. So mm -hmm. my sense, I don't know you well, but my sense <laughs> is that you value creativity, that you think of yourself as a writer, that the identity of being a writer is important to you. Mm -hmm. And so you might go there because of those things. You might think of all those times you spent writing, whereas maybe somebody who's more focused on their social life would be like really reminiscing about all the time they spent with friends and so maybe you're mm -hmm. doing that too I don't know but my point One is or the other show like, <laughs> you can be a writer you can be social yeah no of course I mean no <laughs> I guess I'm talking about myself here but you know my my memories tend to be um I tend to think about you know activities that are that are valuable to me um places have have a strong valence for mm -hmm. me like what places mm -hmm. have contributed to my sense of self and obviously like it can be hard to name these things specifically because when you live in your own experience it's hard to take a step back but um yeah I think we tend to cultivate memories that are important for our formation of selfhood as we think of ourselves and our yeah. value system so we talked a lot about what's kind of going on with memory and I, I do want to spend some chunk of this podcast talking about what we can do about it. And again, like you said earlier, it's not about how can we not romanticize the past, but um, I actually had my best friend and my like old roommate from college <laughs> ask a question for the pod because she and I talk about this all the time. Like we're always like, for example, like we're like, we haven't taken a good photo since 2018. Like when was the last time we were happy <laughs> and all these questions. And so one of the questions she questions that she had for you, her name's Lauren. Um, how do we come to terms with the present, not living up to what we used to have? Um, sometimes we think back to the past of like when we were, when we were happy, but no longer necessarily feel that way now. Again, a lot of this is COVID related. Um, how can we adapt or generate like a different outlook to feel happy again? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is what the question was necessarily going toward. But one thing that I kept thinking and asking myself as I was researching and writing this was like, 
how can we be more nostalgic about the present? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, which is to say, like, how can we adopt that kind of perspective of tenderness and appreciation for the present? Because it is, it's such a warm experience being nostalgic. And then it's like, on the other hand, we're just focused on all this negativity in the present, be part of like, because of our wiring. Mm-hmm. Um, and I should just say, I pointed this out in the article, but like there's research showing that no- the experience of nostalgia actually creates physical warmth in our bodies. Um, it, it can change our temperature. So there are literal like bodily effects to this stuff, which I find super fascinating. That's um, really cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the first thing to answer this question is again, to just point out that like, this is a great coping mechanism. It's a better coping mechanism than a lot of coping mechanisms, which is like, if you want to just remember good things, like don't judge yourself for that. Um, but if it's getting in the way of the present, like if, if fixating on how great the past was is not serving you, um, I do think that, that that awareness piece is important. So, you know, are there ways you can kind of gently without judgment, remind yourself that you're probably zhuzhing up how you're thinking about the past uh, a little bit. So not to say like, it wasn't so great because we don't want to take that away from people. If it feels great, it feels great. But I think it's about zooming out and, and giving yourself the gift of perspective to say, okay, I'm nostalgic. Um, but what's happening right now? And I think over time to kind of answer my own question about how can we be nostalgic for the present? I think a a great exercise is what's happening now that you might likely be nostalgic for. Um, and I did this during the very beginning of, of COVID all the time. I was like, wow, like the city, I'm in New York city, you know, the city is so quiet. Jealous you know, and I was like, I'm going to be nostalgic for that. And I, lo and behold, like the city is not quiet anymore, even though, yep. you know, there's variants and not, not <laughs> yeah. this is over, mm-hmm. but it's not the same. There isn't that same stillness and that same sense of mm-hmm. solemnity in the pandemic. And I like mm-hmm. weirdly feel nostalgic for that. And I, and I tried as it was happening, scary as it was, and lonely as it was, I did try to tap into that. So I do think it's a bit of a mindfulness exercise, even if you're in the midst of, of struggling about something to just like notice little things that you, that you might be. Nostalgic yeah. For. Yes. Yes. Um, now that you brought that up, that was something that I would do. Like when I was really little, if I was having like what seemed to be the best day of my life, like it could be like my birthday party or just like, I don't know, like a rally at school that I helped put on. And if there was just like a moment that I had to just like sit back, I'd look around and I would physically say, oh, I really want to capture this moment and like save it. Like I would like just tell myself that. Then during like early COVID when we were like actually in lockdown and shut inside when I could go outside and like feel the grass underneath my feet and like the sun in my face I was like I'm gonna like just like remember it and I knew I was like you're gonna start work and you're not gonna have this moment Mm -hmm. so cherish this right now um yeah I've never thought about it like I mean I've I've always done it but I've never thought about proactively like oh you're this is you creating a memory for yourself Um, yeah I think we can be more intentional about creating I think so too um 
you might have seen me glancing on my phone. I was trying to find, I texted Epsa yesterday, like when I was listening to your other podcast about something you mentioned oh, yeah. on this topic. I was like, what was it? Um, you had mentioned uh, in that podcast, like self-distancing as mm. a way to stop romanticizing the past. Can you, can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so there's a researcher in particular, um, his name is Ethan Cross at University of Michigan, and he, his whole thing is studying what he calls self-distancing, um, mm-hmm. and that can mean many things. So when we look back at ourselves in the past, that's self-distancing. When we think about ourselves in the future, that's self-distancing. Um, if I were to write myself, I feel like everyone did this in school at one point, but like writing yourself a letter, you know, writing yourself mm-hmm. a letter mm-hmm. is a way to do self-distancing. Um, there are lots of different clever ways you can think about yourself in relationship to yourself. And basically that is kind of the definition of self-distancing. It's being able to adopt a sense of perspective with yourself as if almost as if you were another person. Um, And I don't think that it's so much that it squarely provides like an antidote to romanticizing the past, but I do think, um, it's a way of thinking about romanticizing the past that can be productive. So Mm. rather than say like, this is, I'm wasting my time, you know, living in escapist fantasies. I want to be more present. It's kind of a alternate narrative for it. So it's kind of saying self-distancing is kind of saying like, there's actual benefits to to the fact that we can look back at the past and project into the future um, and adopt that sense of a kind of bird's eye view of our experiences and it allows us to create meaning. Um, and there's research from Ethan Cross's lab that shows self-distancing um, decreases depression, anxiety. Mm. Uh, it contributes to self-reflection um, and emotion regulation, which basically just means like coping and the ability to kind of bring yourself back into balance. Um, and it makes sense. It's like, th- these are unique capacities that we have to be able to be like, what was I like then? And what will I be like in the future? Mm. And, you know, what's important to me? Um, and it kind of stands squarely against the wellness mantra to just be present and live in your experience. But I do think that ability to take a step back, to use like a, you know, proverbial idiom is really, really profound. Um, So that's sort of how I think of it, is that self-distancing provides a framework for thinking about romanticizing the past that actually shows its utility for us. Um, So it's like, um, I'm trying to think of another, it's like vision boarding, like, oh, like I want to be in New York in five years as of sudden I want to, like, and writing that down, that's an example of self-distancing. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, um, like Ethan Cross and probably people who study it would would say it needs to be a little bit more specific to like vision, like almost making it specifically about you rather than like New York or a time period or a mm-hmm. place. So I think it's about like what am like? Let me write a letter to myself in five years when I'm living in New York as an mm-hmm. editor at a magazine or something like that. Self distancing because mm-hmm. it's about really connecting to you uh, at a okay. distance. Okay. Um, but I do think they're related. I mean, one another thing. Vision boarding reminded me of it, but I think you know, in coaching, there's often the exercise to like write about a future experience in the present moment. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm sitting in my oh. office in five years, you know, and drinking a coffee and listening to my colleagues talk about 
the next issue you know that's self-distancing yeah um, okay manifesting yeah, yeah I think I think everything these are like great activities to do like in order to stay present but like be present like intentionally be present right now about I don't know I think these are like really thinking about all of these things you're kind of stating it in almost like a peaceful way like not an overwhelming way of like oh my like taking too much in with our current environment right now um and our last question was actually to be like how what are tips and tricks that you have to stay present but I feel like you've touched on it so beautifully with the activities you've just listed Charlotte, did you, I mean, I, I think you touched on all of them, but did, do you have yeah. any tips like, or like things that you specifically do to stay present? Yeah. I mean, I feel like there are a couple of themes we're talking about, which is like, part yeah. of it is like being present is positive, which like, obviously there's tons of research on mindfulness and how important mm-hmm. it is. But then there's also the argument that like, well, not being present and thinking about the past and the future is actually really beneficial. So I mm-hmm. think both, both of those things are true. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think for me, the creating a sense of a larger picture is, is really useful. And that's the self-distancing piece. So like, who was I and who will I be? Um, and not to keep like citing dry research, but there's one, another one of the researchers I quoted in the article um, had a study that showed that in addition to being a similar part of the brain memory, in addition to memory being a similar part of the brain as imagination, um, memory and projecting into the future are also really similar. Mm. Um, So, you know, as as you're writing that letter to yourself in the future, you can also kind of summon wisdom that you've gained through looking at the past to kind of, what did I learn from then till now? And how am I gonna kind of use that model to think about the future? Um, So I think that, whether you write a letter or not, even just like conceptualizing this idea of selfhood as dynamic and, you know, seeking to be coherent, but not necessarily so, I think that that can be um, really productive and, and healing. I feel like I came out of this learning a lot and like being able to identify specific moments and stories that I have to each like tangible takeaway you share. And I think that that's like hard to do with the conversation. And I feel very fulfilled. Thanks, Charlotte. I mean, I think we've all been kind of going through it. So I think this will really help us just ground ourselves. (laughs) You can listen to our podcast weekly on Spotify or Apple Music and find our blog at thereimaginedpodcast.com. Follow our Instagram and LinkedIn at thereimaginedpodcast to stay up to date on all the things we're reimagining.